Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I am here with Jeffrey Tucker, who has taken time out of bohemian decadence in Vegas to, uh, to give a chance for his uh, cells to recharge, for some of the alcohol to leave his body. And uh, he's going to have a brief, ch brief chat with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Right. You left out the showgirls, you know, that's, and, and the gambling and all that kind of stuff. So. Well, I feel that saying that you're cavorting with show uh, with uh, showgirls is like saying you're wearing a bow tie. I think the evidence is just it's assumed, it's assumed, it's just taken for granted. So, uh, first thing I wanted to mention was that you have a, a new book out. It's a collection of essays called "It's a Jetson's World," right? And uh, I've been plowing through it with great interest, and uh, I just wanted to point out that the writing is so elegant. I really feel it should come with it. Every book should come with its own bow tie. And perhaps, perhaps even a monocle uh, or a parrot, something like that, to, to, to help people to understand just what uh, elegant writing is. So thank you for writing it. I'm really, really enjoying it. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the book, where people can get it from and so on. Yes, well, you can get it from, from Amazon, of course. You can get it from Mises.org, too. Um, you can download it for free if you want to and just sample it and see what you think. Uh, if you don't like it, then sorry, I wasted a few minutes. If you do like it, then uh, and you're happy with the digital version, keep it. Um, if you want a physical version for whatever reason, you're welcome to buy it. Um, but I, I I like the book. I think I think it turned out just fine. I, I like it ever more since I've I've heard your audio recordings of the first couple of chapters. I'm, I'm starting to like it even more. So thank you for doing that. Oh, it's uh, it's my pleasure. I feel that there's a lot of. I mean, my instinct, sort of, in reading it, is that there's a lot of passion a little bit underneath the surface. I mean, you're talking about a lot of really surface things, which I think are really interesting. I, I really, really enjoyed the chapter on um, uh, there's no such thing as homemade ice cream when thinking of the mammoth amount of apparatus you'd need from smelting factories to, uh, uh, to electricity plants and so on to produce your ice cream at home, no refrigeration, nothing like that. And then there seems at the end of the chapters, I feel that there's this this passion bubbling up, this um, re revolutionary zeal. And then it sort of, it gets very civilized at the end. <laughs> I just think I wonder if you felt that at all when you were writing it. it just yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not a gimmick. Um, I think it's kind of the way I think, actually. You know, um, to understand something about liberty is like a gift, you know, and it's like this thing you carry around with you everywhere you go. So you look at things normally at first, and then you look again, and you think, this is extraordinary. And you think, why is it extraordinary? And, and the mind starts to, to, to turn. So this happens to me um, just, just constantly, really, uh, as I'm just sort of navigating the normal world. So what happens to me uh, when I begin to write is I'll, I'll kind of think about it uh, a little bit more. And then I'll put some more pieces into place. You know, I'll think, oh, uh, you know, think of an additional point and imagine how it might be different, how the, these mundane things might be different if if the... Uh, if the structure of our society were different. And then I begin to obsess about it. And pretty soon I just have to write the darn thing up uh, or else I can't sort of move on in life. So that's, that's pretty much how all these things kind of come about. It's a series of obsessions. Uh, so I think if I understand this correctly, writing for you is a therapeutic form of OCD exorcism. Like <laughs> if, you, if you can't get it out, it's sort of like beating the, the Bible of prose against your chest and saying, out, out, demon, out, it's or something, something like, like that. that. Uh, the, other, okay. the other day I wrote this essay about, about warehouses, and it came about because I had visited a warehouse about six months ago, and I realized that I couldn't stop thinking about the experience. I kept thinking about it and imagining it and sort of wishing I was there and I had this picture in my mind and it all became more and more coherent to me. So, and I began to obsess about it. So I just had to, to write it. And I, I compared the warehouse to a, um, a medieval um, 
monastic uh, situation or perhaps with the physical properties of a, of a cathedral with a certain sort of contemplative busyness about it and thinking about just the role of the warehouse plays in the world today, which is so extraordinary. And then I began to ask other people, have you ever been to a warehouse? And everybody said, no, I've never been to a warehouse. So I thought, you know, I could do actually do a service by writing an essay on what a warehouse is like and how wonderful it is. So I was so gratified afterwards to get like floods of email from people who work in warehouses. They said, oh, you captured it just exactly right. Made me appreciate my job ever more. So those are really gratifying emails to get. Well, I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of people in the modern economy who are, I say, mere consumers. They don't realize that the majority of economic activity is actually business to business. I mean, I, in my sort of entrepreneurial career, career uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to tour factories all throughout the U.S. and in China uh, as part of sort of the software company that I co-founded uh, when I was working with uh, pretty large companies, you know, uh, Nortel, General Mills, uh, IBM. And I, I saw a huge amount of the e economic activity that goes on out of the sight of people. You know, it's like the mall behind the mall and the airport behind the mall behind the mall and the mine behind the airport behind the mall. They don't understand that what you see is su such a tip of the iceberg and there's so much that's taken for granted that goes to assemble what it what you get in your hot little hands. Yeah. And I don't know if you have the same sense of it um, that I do, but I, I find it um, beautiful to look at production, to look at the the coordination that goes on and and just the absence of the central planner yes there are managers that that help things along but there's no dictator that mandated this warehouse exists or that warehouse exists or that this consumer buy that buy, buy that product or this entrepreneur start that business or anything ultimately you know all productivity takes place in an environment that's really can be described as anarchistic and and to observe the kind of order that emerges out of that I don't know. I, I, I'm constantly enraptured by it. I, I, I can't say that I entirely understand it. And so part of why I write these things is trying to come to an understanding of how such beauty can exist in the world. And yet um, it's so unappreciated. And yet. And the most successful companies are the ones that allow for as much spontaneous market order as they can. I mean, for instance, at Walmart, if you're an employee, you can decide to order whatever you want and put it on sale. Uh, so, for instance, you may be some manager at a Walmart in a small town, and maybe some small town local actor has a part in a Hollywood movie. Well, you're obviously going to sell many more in that town, so you can order you know, four times or five times the amount, put them on sale, and nobody questions it. You can just go in and pump it in, and, and you're completely open to be an entrepreneur within the Walmart. And the degree to which this stuff is all decentralized is the degree to which you get this amazing productivity and, and price reductions. That's interesting. You know, I, um, that, there must be truth in what you say. I mean, even a company like Google must, must pr permit a great deal of sort of internal entrepreneurship. It, it would have to. That's very true. Yeah, uh, Google, in, in fact, Google, you can identify any problem you want and, and apply any resources that you want to solve it. There's no uh, central plan. And I just I don't want to interrupt what you're saying, but it's always sort of struck me that uh, it, despite what Michelle Bachman says, I think that evolution is probably the correct way that we came to be. In other words, there was no central planning for the human body. So that which sort of flows out of the same mechanisms as that which developed our very brain and communication system itself would seem to be a good plan to go with, which is no plan at all, but allowing the spontaneous order and emergence of things. I mean, that's why we're here. So why would we want our economic activity to be some sort of opposite paradigm? Yes, right. I just heard a lecture this morning, actually, by a fellow who's written a book in defense of the rat race. Do you know what I mean by the word, the phrase rat race? This idea that 
you're supposed to be what I did before I became a podcaster, yeah. <laughs> something like going to work, so, right, so, and and trying to get ahead and ambition uh, and so on. A constant, constant change, constant learning going on, and uh, uh, sort of never, never resting, always uh, taking a risk uh, in life and and what you do, and avoiding sort of um, retirement or cushy. Uh, the welfare check or you know whatever kind of cushy life that uh, you think you might want um, but he argued he argued very i think very persuasively that they were not structured that way that our, that our brains actually want change and we want new we want to know what's next and we want to always kind of constantly strive for things and he didn't say this but as i thought about it you know the state seems to be trying to make us more like itself you know uh, kind of static and boring just rule followers um, uh, bureaucrats like them. I mean, you wondered, I mean, does the state, the state wants us to be all kind of like itself so that it can better control us. And it, it goes crazy. The state is troubled by the innovations and the constant creativity and the constant change of, of the world. And they're always trying to slow it down and, and stop it to rob us of our, essentially rob us of our humanity. You know, I, well, I think that's true, but I think that the state reflects, I mean, there's this duality of human nature in that we want both risk and we want security. And the, those are sort of poles that are in every human being to one degree or another. And so if you if you think like the, the post office gets privatized tomorrow, hallelujah, or the post office gets, gets privatized tomorrow, you know, there's some percentage of the people who were like, oh, thank heavens, now all the idiots are going to get fired and I can actually do something to, to make this job better and more efficient. But then all the idiots are like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm doomed. I'm going to get fired and my job's going to be cut and I'm going to have to go out and compete. And they're afraid of that kind of voluntarism because maybe they haven't improved their skills or their negotiation skills or their social skills or their human capital. So there are these sort of two poles in society and those who want, in a sense, something for nothing, which, you know, it's kind of I mean, the desire to have something for nothing to me is is the root of both the Industrial Revolution and the state. It's like the good and the evil side of wanting something for nothing. Yeah. Uh, because we all want, uh, uh, you know, cars with as little labor as possible, but those in the government want rewards without actually having to negotiate and earn them voluntarily. And so I think these two poles, like you, people who want security and people who want risk, uh, I think we we have to sort of understand that there is no security in the long run except risk. Because if you look at a risk-averse society like the Middle Ages, that to me was a real rat race, like a hamster wheel every day right. like the last. No growth, no right. change. It's, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these societies die and they can't support their populations anymore. And then what's the point? You know, I, I don't want to live in that kind of world. You know, I've, it's fascinating you mentioned people being fired. I've known lots of people who've been fired from a job. Actually, I was fired from a job once um, when I was young. Uh, I'd love to tell that story sometime. But um, uh, it sometimes it turns out to be the best thing that can ever happen to you um, because it opens up a kind of new opportunities and helps inspire creativity and helps you think about yourself and your world in a different way. And the change that it inspires within us um, makes us better people. We're more interested in ourselves, you know, if, if we can kind of rethink our lives from time to time. So, so that change, sometimes we don't welcome it. But sometimes it's the best thing that could ever that could ever uh, happen to us. I, I believe. And well, I, I agree with that. I was uh, I was just reading a um, a book on uh, parenting, and it talks about frustration. My daughter's going through this frustration phase, like she wants to learn how to play ping pong, but she's still kind of awkward with the with the paddle. And uh, the book was saying, well, you know, frustration is essential because it tells you to stop doing something and try another strategy. Like frustrations are very and being fired. Um, I'm trying to think if I've. 
I think I've quit like eight minutes before I was fired at one or two jobs in my life. And uh, yeah, it, it is. If, if you if you're never at risk in your career, it means you're just doing the same damn thing over and over. Like if you're a waiter for 30 years, you're not going to get fired at 30 years in one day. It just means that you're trying new things and trying out new approaches. I think that's really important. Uh, I think it's OK to skate near the edge of the cliff sometimes, because as you say, when you fall, sometimes you fly. You know, that's really, really true. I, I was fired for I was I was working in a shop and I had promised out some um, some alterations uh, out too soon in exchange for the big sale. You know, I wanted the big sale, so I, I made a, a promise that um, that the um, tailors couldn't keep. You know, so uh, the boss threw threw um, seven suits at me and said, uh, "Who's going to alter these things?" And uh, and I said, "Well, I will." And I stayed after and uh, you know bent over the. The machines and I'll alter all the clothing myself and I uh, came out and I thought he was going to say well that worked out well didn't it no he did not because of the insubordination it offended him so greatly that he said well thanks for doing that and I don't need you anymore and I was out the door but it was the beginning of a, a wonderful thing I was glad it happened to me um, because no, I, I did learn a little something about the problem of insubordination with no boss it really appreciates but I needed to leave that place and I needed to move on to another place, and I've carried the lesson uh, the, the, of that event with me throughout my I, my whole life. I, 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 it's really regrettable the way um, the state has actually made it so difficult for us to change jobs. You know, this is one of the problems with freezing labor markets like this. It, it prevents us from reinventing ourselves, or, or, or changing ourselves, or adapting really. And then when we miss enough of those turnoffs to adapt, we then become very scared of adapting. Yeah. You know, some 50-year-old postal worker who hasn't taken any significant training courses ever, when he thinks about vaulting into the free market without the support and protection of the state, it becomes, because we've kind of pushed him off into an isolated end-of-the-road current yeah. uh, where he can't sort of rejoin the mainstream very easily. So it does become more of a self-fulfilling prophecy to protect people from change. They then become more and more frightened of change. And do, do you think that that instills a kind of personality um change in people also when they get in these kind of frozen uh, jobs that they become like their social circle they want to be around not entrepreneurs not interesting people not artists but they want to be around other people who are just as bored with life as they are and that's oh i think i think one's economic activity I mean, it's, it's a shame in a sense to me that economics is considered to be dollars and goods by so many people. To me, economics is life itself. Everything we do is negotiation. There's win-lose. There's hopefully win-win negotiation. So I think that everything that happens uh, in our e what's traditionally called our economic life uh, has enormous formative effects upon our personality, our politics, our perspectives. I mean, there's not a huge amount of likelihood that your average public sector worker is going to be a die to the bull Ron Paul supporter just because the interest so in a sense what you choose as your occupation and the degree to which you're willing to take risks in your occupation changes your personality uh, over the long run and that's why I think it's so hard to change yeah I think it does yeah I was once a good friend with one of the most creative people I ever knew um, and he had a, a, a disease that was almost guaranteed he was going to die at the age of 35, actually. I think these people with the same disease now live much longer, but back in, back in those days, it was almost certain he was going to die at 35, so he knew how long he was going to live. And, um, well, he was just a wonderful person, a great writer and a good friend and charming and funny, and I just I, I adored him. Then he went to work for the Navy, and... Mm, it wasn't like the Navy, like doing Navy things. He was like a paper pusher, you know. And I watched progressively as his personality just died. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, for I mean, sure. It, it's it really very dangerous. Yeah, it's but, very dangerous to get involved in those kinds of organizations yeah. because there's there's the temptation. And, and then, of course, they have this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which is what the Wisconsin fight is to some degree around the public sector at the moment that yeah. – you know, they feel like, well, I put up with crappy work conditions for 10 or 15 or 20 years. I better get that pension. And if that pension is threatened, then my whole life has been a mistake. And then you get this sense of entitlement and rage that comes out of those kinds of people. Yeah. Hey, and you know, there's another aspect to this, too, I was just thinking about. <clears throat> what if we treat everybody um, in the first, say, 20 years of their lives as if there's no risk at all? There's no room for creativity. There's no entrepreneurship. Your job is essentially just to um, stand still, obey, and do what you're told until you're 20 or 25. I wonder what kind of people that would create. I think all we have to do is look around <laughs> and we can see. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you try, this is something I'm writing in a book at the moment. I mean, if you try to apply the standards we apply to children and teenagers to adults, there'd be a revolution in about eight minutes. Uh, and uh, it's really it's tragic, of course, that we expect people to participate in a quasi free market democracy while subjecting them to essentially totalitarianism uh, in the school system for the first uh, decade or two of their life. Uh, it's quite the contradiction that we got communist schools and a quasi capitalist free market that you're supposed to somehow adapt to afterwards. It's like Instant, blah, blah, blah. right. One day, the next one day you've got the cap and gown on and then the next day you're expected to go out there and, and make it on your own and do wonderful things. How's that going to work? You know, uh, uh, people have to be socialized to live in a, in a world of change. And we do live in a world of change. Maybe um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, it wasn't. Uh, you could kind of get one job and keep it the rest of your life. The rest of your life. You know, you, you learn only up to a certain age and then you stop learning and then you just kind of do the same thing over and over again. Maybe, that, maybe that's the way it was after the Second World War up until 10 years ago. But that world is just completely gone now. And we're learning things about, about the world that we didn't know. For example, the Mises Academy, when we first opened up the doors, we expected most of the students to be um, college students, right? Because that's the age at which people are officially supposed to learn. Well, it turns out they're all ages, and the demographics are really global. And uh, some of the people who are most hungry for learning new things are, um, for example, Americans who are working abroad in uh, foreign Foreign companies, forereign countries, and they want to they want they want to educate themselves. Homeschooling mothers, for example. I mean, learners are everywhere, and we have to rethink our understanding of of what it means to to learn. I mean, it really is a lifelong process. I'm not sure that we always knew that, though. Yeah, and I think that was because, as you say, we'd come out of school and we'd just do that thing. Right. Of whatever it was doing, with some variations, but it would be mostly the same. But now, I mean, what is the statistics are something like you will ha you may have three to five not just different jobs, but almost different occupations throughout the course of your life. And you may have dozens of jobs. And so, yeah, you constantly need to be to be learning and growing. I mean, even if you're, I mean, obviously in the technology field, the medical field and the legal field and the accounting field, there's constantly new things. But uh, I think in just about everybody's uh, life, uh, if you look at it, there's just massive amounts of change as we're constantly trying to adapt to these two poles of increasing uh, regulation and increasing uh, freedom. Uh, we, we talked about this before on the show, and you have an example, of course, in the book of, you know, you, you needed something done at the Mises Academy uh, website, and, uh, you know, bingo, bango, bongo, you get some guy in Africa to do it. And so there's this incredible freedom 
to outsource to to work with people around the world and and I don't think I've ever worked with anyone uh, in my show that's in the same country I think it's always around the world and so there's that aspect and at the same time there are these incredibly uh, extrapolating and mounting regulations and so veering between the Scylla and Charybdis of freedom and compulsion has caused us to adapt I think even more so than we would if we were just in a state of freedom. Isn't it interesting that most of these regulations are applied on the national level and yet more and more all of us live in a kind of a global sense of, I mean in a in a in the in the whole world we are we're living we're citizens with the people from from all over the world and not just in a kind of an abstract you know way but really I mean we're all doing business now we're selling things and buying things from people as individuals from all over the world so we have an identity now we have a consciousness of uh, the the of the oneness of humanity and the the, the artificiality of the, of the nation state um, and yet the QE1 QE2 you know um, all the central plans that pour out of Washington they apply only to this little artificial stupid thing we call the nation this anachronism really I wonder how long this can can last really I mean a central plan isn't really viable on a global level probably not let's hope not yeah I, I do see sort of uh, this this ancient anachronistic sand castle of the state yeah. trying valiantly to shore itself up as the increasing waves of globalization crash against it and render it that much you know in the moment that you were doing business with the fellow in africa you had far more in common with him Absolutely. than uh, you did with anybody say on your street or certainly your politicians i mean that's where your human connection and relationship was yes and so our consciousness is is changing really i mean we used to have a consciousness of ourselves as americans I mean, less and less so uh, and the more the a global um, digital world, the more the digital economy expands, the more our sense of being a global citizens is, is going to grow. And the change of consciousness there is going to change everything about politics because what we think in our head eventually, you know, becomes uh, what the reality that we experience. So I wonder how much longer it can really last. Let me ask you about something, Stefan, I was going to try out tomorrow, I think, in my speech. Um, you know, more and more, uh, the state has set itself against technology, you know, um, trying to drive things back and back and back while we want to go forward and forward and forward, making things work less well. We, we want to make them work better. And so we've got this clash at work. And I began to think about the history of clashes over technology. And, and guess who the losers are in every case, right? It's those who resist the change. They eventually get buried. Well, we've got a kind of a nation state now that's resisting change. What do you think about that? I think it's, uh, I think it's in now, when you say technology, you mean sort of household appliances as well as obviously the obvious sort of computer technology yeah, and so on. All kinds of technology, all forms of progress. I mean, I look back at the sweep of history and, you know, again and again, the, uh, uh, we, we see those, those who resist uh, change and resist improvements and resist uh, new technologies um, are, are, uh, are buried, essentially, by, by, by trends. And now the state used to be sort of more or less in, in, in favor of progress, you know, in favor of electrification, you know, a century ago and, and uh, trying to push our, 
a material world further down the line. They, they never actually accomplished it, and they did it in uneconomic ways, but that was the ethos of the state, say, 100 years ago. Now we've got this kind of weird government that's just dedicated to lowering our standards of living all the time, and, and that seems to be what it's all about, and resisting the new thing and resenting the new thing and trying to stop progress all the time. So it's put itself in a kind of a reactionary position, very much like those who resisted the printing press, you know, or, uh, yeah, I think I think there's. I mean, one of the oldest mythologies of mankind is that you become enamored of some new and easier way of doing things, uh -huh. and that turns out disastrous, right? So you you want robots to clean your house, and they take over your life. And uh, Mickey Mouse wants to uh, use the sorcerer's um, wand to make the water carrying easier, and he creates a huge. A mess. Uh, even the technology of uh, Aeschylus flying too close to the sun with his wings, uh, he falls. And, and of course, Ayn Rand talks about this quite a lot with Atlas and so on. And I think there's something very true about that, not for the average citizen, but for the state. The state at the moment is completely addicted to technology. You could not have the modern Leviathan without computerization. You couldn't have deductions at source. You couldn't have the complexity of the tax rules. Uh, you couldn't have uh, all these controls. You certainly couldn't have fiat currency in the way that it runs now without computerization. So the state has become completely dependent upon electronics. But it is those very same electronics that is building a web that is independent of and fundamentally opposed to through, through ignoring the state. I mean, you doing business as someone in Africa is not an act of revolution, but it is an act of bypassing. And that sort of agorist approach, whether it's official or just unofficial, is just a way of saying, well, this great technology exists and the state has taken it over both for military and taxation and control and regulation and all of this kind of stuff. And at the same time, this technology is in a race against those who are using it to control us to, to flee that sense of control. To me, there's absolutely no doubt that this, the, the, the fleeing the control is going to win in the long run. Yes. I mean, we hope it's not too ugly a passage, but right. the state has grown so addicted to technology, but it is that same technology that is going to allow us to escape its grip in the long run. So about two days ago, I um, carried on a conversation with somebody on Facebook in Galician, which is a kind of a Portuguese. It's a kind of a, maybe like a, like a high Spanish. Yeah. Right. Obviously, I know nothing about this language, right? Uh, so I was able to use Google Translate, you know, to go back and forth with this person. We had a charming little uh, um, conversation. I mean, to me, this was just amazing. I mean, who? I, I can't. If somebody told me five years ago, you're going to carry on a conversation, a digital conversation with somebody in Galician, you know, I thought, proof, boy, I don't. I'm not, is that something like Klingon? Is that like yeah. a Star Trek language? I don't even know what that is, right? I would have dreaded all the classes I would have had to take to do it, but it's not necessary anymore. So these are wonderful things and, and, and help, help unify and globalize the world you know, of, of individuals instead of just, uh, just nation states. Yeah, so I think I think the technological argument is is very strong. We yeah. we are being shaped. You know, I, we used to sort of I used to sort of think we sort of come into the world as adults with our personality, and the personality is sort of like a battleship. Yeah, you know, maybe stormy seas, but the battleship doesn't change. But as I've sort of noticed, particularly over the past few years since I've been working on Free Domain Radio full time, you know, my brain, my approach, my habits, my way of thinking about the world has all changed yeah and and my my daughter i mean who likes watching videos she's currently into culverts for reasons that won't 
What, what is that? Explain. Into culverts, what? you know, the little tubes that go under the the um, the road to transport the water. She loves looking for them and, and all that. Uh-huh. And so she loves looking at culverts. So we've been looking at culverts all over the world. And it struck me that she has now seen, you know, through through YouTube and movies, she's seen a v- wide variety of different countries. But I've never taught her the word Canada yet or United States or any of those things. So she knows the world as the world. But she has no idea there is such a thing as countries yet. She's interested in flags, but she doesn't know just, you know, pretty blankets in the sky. She doesn't know what they are. And so her whole way of thinking about things is thinking about things as as the world rather than as countries. And that is kind of a result of technology. You know, so much of what you do on Freedom Main Radio is – Freedom Radio is – uh, what the old Marxists would describe as consciousness raising, we could probably learn something from from them. You know, the old Marxists believed that the way to change the world was to raise the consciousness. You know, to to enlighten uh, people as to the plight. You know, and then once once the the mind changes, then the world around you begins to look a uh, completely different way. Now, the flaw in the Marxist view of this was that they had the completely wrong model. But we could probably adopt some of that uh, that dedication to consciousness raising ourselves, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I just read something the other day that the United Nations has released a report that is finally admitting that it is free markets that is helping the world's poor, not foreign aid. And this was, you know, you could see them almost pulling out their own molars with uh, a kite string uh, to, to come up with this. And and. and you know, in a sense, all grudging admiration to them for following the data rather than the ideology. But that, that to me is an amazing thing that the global socialist monster <laughs> is actually saying, well, free markets have done a lot more for the poor in India and, uh, and China, just to name two, right. where 50,000 people a month are rising out of poverty. And that has nothing to do. In fact, it's quite in opposition to any kind of central planning or the redistribution of wealth. Now, it's buried in the report and you have to kind of look for it. But it really is fascinating that that is even open to discussion and, and promulgation within the United Nations, which is the super anachronism of the you know, overarching uh, state and that to me is an amazing uh, explosion of consciousness. Right, and uh, my friends in in China and Taiwan tell me that um, uh, like like practically nobody believes in the state at all, except for the state itself. I mean that uh, you know everybody understands that freedom, and entrepreneurship, and trade, and cooperation with their with their neighbors and with everybody around the world is the is the source is going to be the thing that saves us. That that's the thing that permits us to create our the closest thing we can have in this world to utopia. And that the state, you know, is a drag on this on this whole system. So we have, yeah, we have a kind of rising global consciousness. Uh, and we think in the West that we're somehow the the holders of the Enlightenment keys to small government. But I was talking to Doug Casey recently, who who bases himself in Argentina, and he was saying, well, you know, I've lived in like dozens of countries. I like Argentina the most because everyone in South America just realizes that the, the government is just a bunch of banditos that you have to pay off and bypass, and you know, they're just a bunch of criminals. And and it's viewed that way in in China, at least when I was able to get some pretty private conversations with people in China when I was there. People in China are just like, ah, a bunch of criminals and you just have to pay them off and get your way. Yeah. The same thing is true in uh, in India. I mean, the corruption is, is, is laughable. And you look at any novels or books coming out of India, they always have some scene wherein there's just, you know, some scumbaggery of a local bureaucrat that you have to press with rupees to get anything done. Yeah. And so the skepticism about the state, which used to be the core of Western philosophy, and we'd look around the world and say, well, these people are so primitive, they're still addicted to the nation's state. I think that the true, in a sense, green shoots of freedom are coming out of 
uh, countries that do not have the same ideological history as the West does, but have much more direct empirical evidence of the right. destruction of the state. That's right. Yeah, I think that you've, you're onto something there. I really believe this. I was just talking to some guys from Australia, and I don't know if you've noticed this. Anytime you talk to somebody from some foreign country, they always come to you and say, well, our government is terrible. You know, it's just filled with a bunch of idiots and they're doing stupid things. I mean, believe me, it's way worse in my country than it is in your country. And then you respond, well, actually, it's pretty rotten here, too. You know, you have these kind of discussions. With people. people always forget their own government is, is worse than your government. But these guys from Australia told me, said, no, you've got some advantages here because you have this long history of, of freedom. And... Uh, and we've, that's our, our our roots, you know. This this idea, you know, the whole founding founding uh, myth, if you want to call that, or maybe it's reality. I mean, there's there's an element of certainly in American culture that that celebrates freedom and everything. But I, you know, I don't really know if that's our saving grace. I don't really know how much good that does us if people don't really understand what it was all about and what it all means and what it applies. I'm not sure that it really has any bearing. And I think you're onto something. People who have more immediately experienced, you know, the most extreme aspects of the state, to see that the 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 uh, the grip loosened, and to see what happens to the society, see it flourishing, it may be a, a more ripe venue for understanding of freedom than we have uh, right here. I was just at uh, in Newport looking at all the the mansions uh, that were built by the robber barons, you know and um and uh observing their lives and seeing what i of course i love all these guys i i love i love the gilded age and what it all means um well um i went to mansion after mansion most of the tourists uh that were there were were asians actually and they were taking a ton of pictures and they're reading all about the lives of the vanderbilts and you know and uh but there weren't too many americans that were actually touring so at least from my experience i thought well who are the people who are admiring this this generation of great capitalists and entrepreneurs there's not the americans or the asians so right and i think one thing that's really happened to uh, certainly european culture to a large degree british and i would argue certainly american is that a, th a third of Americans get all or a significant portion of their income from the state. And what I think people forget is they think, okay, so they think of it like it's, you know, those pie charts that are ubiquitous within PowerPoint where, you know, you get this one third. And, and the one third is sort of cut off and separated like a piece of a pie that's taken out of the pie and put on a plate. But that's not, that's not the way that society works. Relationships are incredibly intertwined. We are all like trees in a forest that grow together. So those three, this is a sort of one third of Americans who get most or, or all of their income from the state. They're mixed in like, like water. Um, when you put food coloring into water, it all mixes in together. You can't separate it anymore. And that means in any family where there's six people, uh, two or more are getting most of their income from the state. And so if there's some crazy libertarian or anarchist in that family around the dinner table, you're getting two people whose backs are immediately going to go up because you're threatening their income. And unfortunately, because we don't work from first principles in the West anymore, ideology follows self-interest. You know, you have some self-interest, then you just make up some ideology to, to make that virtuous. And so it's the dinner table conversations that to me are the main barrier of freedom. Whereas in the developing countries and in South America and so on, uh, you know, it's it's well known that, you know, you, if you're just some bureaucrat, then you're on the take and people That's can right. joke about it and laugh about it and, and even criticize you for it. And there's not that same level of tension. Whereas if you go to an American Thanksgiving and some libertarians talking about privatizing and you've got two school teachers at the table who are liking their summers off, it gets really tense and personal very quick. And that, to me, is the kill switch for progress in the West. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting, a very interesting point, and it's true in every every single family. You know, Wendy McElroy had an article on Mesosaur the other day, um, uh, making this very point and and saying, trying to explain to those people who are, are living, you know, basically a dependence on the state, that look, it's not personal. You know, it's not about you as an individual. We want you to have uh, rights, just like we want to have rights. Um, it's an institutional. Uh, problem it's not really a personal problem but that's very difficult to get across to people i think yeah i was uh i was just at a playground uh a while back and there were a bunch of uh of of women uh, who were standing around and all of them were like oh thank god it's friday we're done for the summer we can we can relax we can get away from these kids we can kick back and all that and and i don't know i just generally think that people who educate children it would be somewhat preferable if they liked the children. I, you know, call me crazy, but I think that sort of that would that would be a plus. And how are you going to go up to these people and say, "Look, uh, studies show that year-round schooling is much better for the kids because you take some eight-year-old and give him two months off in the summer. You might as well start from scratch next year." And how are they going to give up their summers? Well, y you can do it. I mean, people go to war. Uh, people volunteer and and sign up for war if they feel that the cause is good enough. But I just don't think we've made the case at a moral enough and passionate enough level that we can get people to give up the sugar and frosting that they get uh, and and make sacrifices for the good of society. We just haven't. Now, unfortunately, I think our political enemies are going to start making that case. Uh, you start to hear these people talk about sacrifice because they know that the budget cuts are coming. They know that the U.S. debt is going to be downgraded. They know that more of the money is going to have to be poured into servicing the debt and the interest because of the downgrade of U.S. bonds and securities. So they know that they're going to have to start making calls for sacrifice. I don't think libertarians have made that case strongly enough that the people are going to have to accept short-term sacrifices for the sake of a long-term good. And we all do that. I mean, we floss, we diet, we eat Brussels sprouts when we'd rather have uh, a butter tart. So we can all do that at an individual level, but I just think that we haven't made the case. We talk about the utopia over the hill. We don't talk about the sweat of climbing it, I think. Yeah, no, by the sacrifice, you mean that people's benefits are going to be cut, the programs are not going to uh, turn out to offer all the uh, blessings that, uh, that people had expected. That's what you mean by the, by the sacrifice, right? Well, I mean, it's going to be pretty short and sharp and, and ugly, right? I mean, because um, uh, you can, I mean, they call this austerity. That to me is quite astounding, the Greek austerity. It's like, you're retiring at 50 and you're calling it austerity if it becomes 53. I mean, that to me is like saying, well, you used to have 10,000 calories a day. We're going to cut you down to 9,500 and we call that starvation rations. I mean, that to me, austerity is just a crazy word. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, people got, you know, three to four dollars in services for every dollar they paid in taxes. And the result, of course, has been the national debt. And so not only are people going to have to accept one-to-one, -one, but probably less than one-to-one -one in terms of services versus uh, taxes. To, 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 or, or the debt's going to have to be repudiated, in which case everybody's uh, stock portfolio savings and real estate value get largely wiped out. So there's going to have to be some ugly, grisly passage of repudiation and, and selling off of, of government assets, uh, assets, I think, because I don't think there's going to be anything other than repudiation. There's just no way the debt can mathematically be paid off when it's 70% of GDP. No, right. And so, look, it's going to be hard, but people accepted that during the Second World War, right? And that was the last war that people were asked to accept sacrifice in that kind of way, where, you know, things were heavily restricted, standard of livings dropped considerably, but because it was a fight against 
uh, disaster, evil, Nazism, uh, fascism, and immorality, people were willing to shoulder up and take those burdens. But I don't think we've had somebody making the case that says, look, we're going to have to take this Band-Aid off, and it's going to feel like half your arm is coming with it, but right. it's absolutely necessary to do. Right, that is true, and, and the des description of what comes afterwards has been completely absent from this debate. You know, I mean, the fact is that if you're cutting government spending, you're in effect putting more resources back into the private sector and that leads to uh, a, a greater greater growth and more investment. Well, but sorry, Jeff, my argument would be, well, how, I mean, nobody addresses how you can cut. I mean, let's say that you cut the military industrial complex as Ron Paul wants to do. Well, so all these people come home, you've still got pensions, uh, you've got decommissioning costs and you have, of course, if they can't find work, they just go on unemployment insurance. So it's not like you're saving a lot of money. Uh, there is no particular way to cut government spending in the short run because uh, you fire government workers, they just go on unemployment insurance. Have you really saved that much? Plus, you have to pay the massive severances, which puts you even more in the hole. Yeah. The system has been set up so that there really is no way uh, for for a, uh, a soft landing. It's like aloft, 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 plummet. That seems to be how it's sort of been set up. Yeah, well, I mean, I almost feel like your scenario there would be a wonderful thing. I mean, I I I, I love this idea of repudiating uh, the debt um, and uh, falling apart of all these government systems. I think would be the the best thing that ever happened to us. I mean, I would start to get optimistic, you know, about the near term if 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 this were actually happening. But I I, I can't really believe it. It will happen. Most of the people who talk about sacrifice. And Washington are essentially asking us to pay um, more in taxes, which is just you know preposterous. That that's a a job killer and a business killer at a time when, you know, um, we've got at least ten percent unemployment. It's among some demographics it's as high as fifty percent unemployment. And virtually, and, and you're competing with with you're sorry, but you're competing with Russia and and China and some of the Middle East countries and and India where there is effectively no income tax there's very little sales tax uh, and there's much less if not no national debt and so you this is something that I mean you're competing against economies that don't have these kinds of burdens and so it's the example that you gave in the book that you shackle the runners and it's like yeah okay they can still complete the race though it's pretty ugly and grisly and they get shaved beyond all recognition but the reality is that there are some people who've got jetpacks and some people who've got shackles. We unfortunately happen to be the culture with the shackles. Putting more shackles on is not, even if it could help with our economy, it's not going to help in competing against economies that can, as soon as they develop a little bit more, not more than five or seven years in my opinion, yes. China and, and Russia and, and um, uh, India, they can just bypass us yeah. and go sell to each no, other because they'll be that advanced. And, and, and the reason for this, I wonder if how much of this has to do with technology, because, you know, it took uh, hundreds of years, well, really, essentially thousands of years for us to build our current standard of living. But with technology now, people can get there much faster than they used to. And uh, so it's not going to be like uh, China's going to need 200 years or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's like when you develop a drug, right? The first pill costs you a billion dollars. Yeah. The second pill costs you half a penny. Well, we've already done the first pill for the world. There's none of that reinvention that's necessary. So everybody can piggy tail up everything we've done right. and just completely rocket past us. Yeah, no, that's right. With private cell phone networks, you know, uh, uh, at any country, you can you can immediately be as developed as, as, as anybody. You know, essentially, if you've got the Internet, you've got a computer, you've got a cell phone. Um, you're living pretty well, and you, you're able to bypass all the uh, intervening stages. So, yeah, I think this is this is coming. I, I, you're in, interesting. Your estimate of five to seven years 
I've heard 15 and 20 before, but five to seven, that's very interesting. Yeah, it could come to that. It's a wonderful thing. And it'll be a humbling experience. You know, um, particularly Americans are just obsessed with this idea of being number one. I, I don't really know what that, what that means, you know, but um, we're just going to have to get used to a different reality. And uh, the first one is that um, the this ridiculous competition between nation states and who's going to be number one is the, the most destructive uh, kind of... Uh, uh, theory you can ever have about the world. It doesn't, it doesn't gain anybody. It's preposterous. The other thing is um, the point we made earlier that we have a greater stake in the prosperity of, of Thailand, Somalia, and Madagascar than, than, than we do in you know, the well-being of uh, uh, Washington uh, bureaucrats, frankly. Yeah, that that's certainly very true. Uh, I'm going on TV later today to talk about this. This um, this Bohemian Grove meeting has started out in California, where sort of 2,400 of the world's most powerful men, no women allowed, right. apparently, they sort of meet and and uh, yeah, I mean they meet and they have interests in common uh, in the way that that we don't. Um, the the, the interests in common that we have is vertical, is, is horizontal rather. It's it's economically horizontal. It is not politically vertical. The interests of Obama it, it's completely opposed to the interests of most Americans, whereas uh, somebody who, who they can work with in, in Africa or Malaysia, uh, their interests are, are in common. And yeah, you're right. The number one thing, I mean, <laughs> the only thing that countries ever become number one in is stuff that's bad for uh, the average citizen, right? So it's like America's number one in two things, healthcare costs and arms uh, sales and arms uh, uh, production. Uh, and neither of those things are any good to the average person. And uh, in just about everything else, it's, uh, it's really ranked pretty low. And uh, so, yeah, anytime you sort of say we want to be number one, you mean our government should be number one. And that's directly against my self-interest. So it is a way of voting yourself off the totem pole to a pretty big chasm below. And, you know, there's some people who claim that uh, nationalism is somehow built into the human psyche, that we all want to be part of a nation state. I don't believe this at all. I've read plenty of of uh, memoirs and stories and biographies of the age before the nation state, which you could say was invented, I don't know, it's an arbitrary number, but say it was invented in the 15th, 16th century, as we understand it now. Before then, people would think of themselves as, as Europeans, you know, not, not so much. Um, or Christians, or, um, yeah, yeah. Or, or of course in the aristocracy, they would think of themselves as a particular family. Uh, there was many, many layers of identity. And, oh, you've just, you've triggered, I'm afraid, a, a rant tripwire on me, but I'll try and keep it brief because I get very, very annoyed, not that you're making it, but at the human nature argument. It, to me, it is an ultimate cop-out yeah. uh, because it's people just saying, well, your ideas frighten me. I can't think of a way to disagree with them or to argue against them. The evidence and reason is on your side, so I'm going to pull out this wild card smoke screen called human nature and ascribe everything to that. Right. It's nonsense. People would say prior to the 18th or 19th century, well, it's human nature to own slaves. It's human nature to That's have right. slaves. It's human nature to subjugate your women and not give them any rights. You can't show me a society where that hasn't occurred. And it's like, oh man, the human nature argument is just, uh, the human nature is adaptable. It, it, was it human nature to work with computers before 1960? No, there was no such thing. And now we can't, you know, they become intertwined with our lives in a very, uh, to our DNA almost. And yeah. Was it human nature to uh, to to believe that uh, demons possessed epileptic victims. Well, yeah, but but saying it's human nature is nonsense. The, the, the fundamental aspect of human nature is that it is incredibly adaptable to circumstances. We are one of the only species who throw 
both memes and epigenetics can actually adapt to our environment on the fly. Uh, human beings adapt to their environment before they're even born. There are physiological changes in the fetus if the woman is under has too little nutrition. Uh, it changes the way the body handles. It's one of the reasons uh, why people may end up getting overweight later in life is that their fundamental physiology changes even before they're born. They, they're adapting to their local environment. If the mother is under significant degrees of stress, then children are born more aggressive because their bodies say, oh, wow, if there's lots of stress, we must be in a win-lose, highly competitive, <laughs> scarce resource environment, so let's be an asshole because that's how we're going to get ahead. Whereas if you have a peaceful, happy, sunlit pregnancy, you come out more willing to negotiate and, and less aggressive because that's the environment so there's no a human nature to me it's it, all we are is adaptable it's like saying that a water poured into a jug has jugness to it no it's just whatever it happens to be poured into that's the shape it takes and there's no such thing as human nature except adaptability anyway just that's my oh, i think my, it's my, very interesting I'm, as you're as you're talking I'm, I'm i'm thinking about one of my favorite subjects i love to read about are renaissance composers okay so uh, mostly 16th century guys who um, uh, were always, you know, had a hard time getting a steady work. You know, so, well, <clears throat> one of the things they would do is just move around from place to place, you know, composing for whomever would, would take their music and, and pay them to do it. So some of these guys had, um, you know, five different names or even 10 names. Or Orlando de Lasso, I think he had like 15 different names. You know, every time you go to a different language group, he would, he would change his name to adapt to that particular culture. Well, he was an enormous success, and he was a great success because um, because he was able to adapt to his environment and and recreate himself um, for commercial reasons, you know. And uh, we, we're going to have to develop those kind of skills, I think, in the future if we're going to live in a, in a in a global society. And it will it will be easy, and it'll be exciting, it'll be fun. Change is fun, you know. Um, yeah, and and I think the adaptive uh, the adaptability of human nature is innate. Uh, I mean, we adapt from not being able to walk to being able to walk when we're babies, from not being able to speak to being able to speak. Uh, adapt adaptability has to be interfered with and ossified through hierarchical control, right? It's like you put kids in those desks, you know, they sit there in these dusty classrooms while somebody drones and scratches on the chalkboard. Uh, I mean, that that puts rigidity and and dullness into human nature, so to speak, because then you're adapting to a medieval situation of no change and no initiative and no capacity to choose your own subjects. So you really have to box the natural electric flightiness and adaptability of human nature. You have to box it in and squish it and, and you know, put it out, so to speak. And that's what's so tragic about the way that the people come out of these public school systems no longer uh, is easily able to adapt. And of course, the, you know, the, the entrepreneurial classes who've made it, uh, who are rich and wealthy, uh, they don't want a lot of poor kids with entrepreneurial skills because they'll underbid them because their costs are lower. So I think it's a lot about keeping competition out of the uh, sort of mercantilist class that that drives the the support, you know, Bill Gates, you know, is going into education, and I mean, it's just gruesome to watch somebody who's quite a master of uh, free market ideology and uh, practice going into this educational system, and you can see the hairs slowly getting plucked out from his head as he tries to deal with this, and of course, he's not going to get anywhere because a system right. that's based on compulsion cannot be reformed to goodness, and of course, he doesn't really understand that as yet. And I know it sounds ridiculous for me in my little room to be lecturing Bill Gates, no, but, it's, but you know, it, it's, it's real. It's, some of the great entrepreneurs don't really understand the system and, uh, that that gives rise to what they do. I mean, this is always this has always been true. You know, I mean, I was, I was, I was you know, looking back at the the. Um, the Gilded Age entrepreneurs, one of the ambitions that they all had was for their daughters to marry some defunct 
our soon-to-be-defunct uh, European aristocrat, you know, Lord so-and-so or the Duke of whatever, right? Now you talk about we have to be elevated from trade or what is trade for? Right. I know. Right. I mean, you talk about a class of people that are completely different from the American entrepreneurs. Totally different. I mean, the, why would they want to fob their daughters off these on, on, on these guys? I mean, it, it's just the weirdest thing. There's some fear of social status or seeking validation by embracing, you know, dying monarchs or something. It's all very bizarre. And look at Mark Zuckerberg. You made the point about uh, Bill Gates. But it does, isn't Zuckerberg a big benefactor of public school systems? I mean, isn't that one of the things he's done with his money? Right, right. And that's, I mean, that is a failure of imagination. And I mean, how could people, in a sense, understand universals without being trained? I mean, uh, it is really hard to say, well, the, the, the environments that allowed me to be successful should at least be explored in other areas. We just have this dividing line in our brain. It's like we have a whole separate personality for dealing with the state. Uh, where we just assume a completely different character and personality, where uh, everything which we value in our personal lives, this is a point I make in the book, uh, Everyday Anarchy, uh, you know, if, if you took away people's freedom of choice yeah. in who to marry or what to do for their uh, career or where to get educated in college and so on, uh, you'd get this incredible revolution. We love having no central control as adults, but you try extending that to children and suddenly we flip over to like medieval brain, where, oh, that would be a catastrophe. So it's a catastrophe for... For us not to have anarchy in vast areas of our lives, but then it's a complete catastrophe to have anarchy in other areas of our lives, not even just to do with children, but like uh, charity or helping the poor or helping the sick or the old or whoever. Uh, that needs all compulsion, but you apply those same rules of compulsion to the marriage market or the career market, and suddenly it's an intolerable intrusion into freedom. It's bizarre how many personalities we have to adapt to or create, in a sense, to to survive in these various environments we have to swim through. I think that's a, I think I think that's an extra excellent point. I was thinking about this being here at, at Freedom Fest. You know, there's a there's about two thousand five hundred people here, and um, I would say that the anarchists are the minority here. But the subject that everybody's addressing is the subject of freedom, right? So every talk is about freedom. And as this is lecture earlier today, I'm quite certain that this guy is not anarchist. I mean, I would say very few of the people here are thorough, but all those more anarchists here than there would have been, say, 10 years ago. But nonetheless, anytime you talk about freedom, you're essentially talking about anarchy. You're talking about the exercise of human volition and, and a world created by uh, human hands. And that is a world of, of anarchy. And the state contributes nothing to the well-being of freedom, nothing to making our lives better. It's, it's, it's our choices uh, that, that make our lives better off. So and there's a way in which everybody who's attending Freedom Fest is an implicit anarchist. They just need to be, um, they need to be taught to be consistent in their outlook. And I think, yeah, I mean, an anarchist is just a libertarian who's thought things through to their logical conclusions. I, think that's I mean, right. it's and, uh, and not, not you afraid. can't you can't sort of stay. You can't say, well, it's a universal principle, except for here, 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 and here. Okay. You know, except for police and military and law courts. You know, that sort of Randian approach. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was that way for many years and uh, tried to square the circle of uh, having a state. Uh, without compulsion, uh, which is like, you know, trying to have a circle that is a square at the same time. Right. And it's, you know, you just have to let that go and say, look, it's not my preferences. It's not my habits. It is reason alone that is going to inform my perspective. And uh, unfortunately, if the non-aggression principle is valid, then it stretches uh, horizontally across all sectors of society. It stretches, and this is a challenge for people too, which I argue a lot in my shows, it stretches vertically from uh, newborns or even before they're born all the way through 
to, to the elderly, that the non-aggression principle applies to children uh, first and foremost, and if it doesn't apply to children, it's never going to apply anywhere else uh, because people will just be traumatized from being hit or, or excluded or whatever. And so, yeah, you just you have to extend it. Uh, you know, scientists don't get the option to say the theory of relativity applies everywhere except in my backyard. I mean, if you say that, you're not a scientist. You're just a crank, right? And so uh, the scientific principle is, well, yeah, 2 plus 2 is 4 over here and over here and up this mountain and down this valley and on this airplane. It just is all over. And the non-aggression principle, since it is our North Star, it has to be valid everywhere. And, you know, to try and create exceptions is simply to abandon the principle. And then what's the point of starting? That's right. And it's, and it's not as if once you embrace the principle, you're done. I mean, um, I'm constantly learning new applications of the idea of human liberty. Uh, it never stops. The other day I, I read for the first time, I'm embarrassed to say for the first time, a book by Clarence Darrow called um, Resist Not Evil. And it's an application of the ideas that you're referring to, to the criminal justice system. And what he explains is that the flaws that appear in the criminal justice system, the injustice of the, of the, uh, the jails and the beatings by the police or the stupid decision by the, by the, um, by the, uh, the, by the judge or the uh, absurdity of the jury or whatever kind of problem you want to draw your attention to, that these are not, um, or the, the, um, the tendency of the state to sort of make things crimes that aren't really crimes, that these are not just sort of individual um, exceptional failures, uh, that the real failure is systematic or it's systemic. It's embedded in the structure of this very notion that the state can give us a justice. So Clarence Darrow, this great criminal defense attorney, says that in the same way that um, the state cannot really create a socialist utopia, it cannot really give us justice. It has no means to do so. As a matter of fact, it has every incentive to create more criminals, to, to feed the system and make the system grow at our expense. So he makes this argument in a very passionate way, um, in a way that, that I felt after reading it, I felt kind of like physically different. I mean, it was that powerful a book, because I'm not sure that I had entirely understood the points he was making here. And really, it's just an application of non-aggression principle to this idea of, of justice. So in other words, the reason I tell that story is to say that, you know, we never stop applying this principle. We never stop learning. There are always new things to discover about, about human liberty. Yeah, to me, the non-aggression principle is like mathematics. You're never done with mathematics. Right. You know, it, it's not it, because it is an equation, not a conclusion, or it is a system of of consistency in human relationships. Right. So to me, it's like, well, are you ever done with science? No, you're never done with science. There's always something new and something. Are you ever done with medicine? No, no, of course not. And you're never done with the non-aggression principle because right. finding ways in which it can be applied, yeah. even to existing systems, is is fantastically involved. You spend your whole life doing it and oh, only scratch the surface. And yet thinking about ways in which it can be applied to future situations and systems as well right. uh, is also something that that you can really get absorbed in, absorbed in. And it doesn't end. And that's what I love about it so much. Yeah. It's true of philosophy as a whole and economics. And this book, this book, by Clarence Darrow was written in 1902, and he's describing the outrageous injustices of our of our courts, our prisons, and, and our the police. 1902, I mean, my my vision of 1902 is practically you know uh, virtually no government at all. But yeah, you've got no income tax, yeah. you've got no national debt, you've got no passports, right. uh, you have almost no restrictions to trade. There's no. Uh, environmental regulations, no health and safety regulations. Of course, people hearing this say, okay, so basically they were feeding workers into blenders. And of course, that has nothing to do with the truth. But yeah, I mean, the size of the government, I would imagine, would be probably one twentieth what it is yeah. 
today, not even counting the national but, debt. And of course, he's talking about, my God, look at these injustices. Oh, it's a good thing he couldn't see forward in time. I mean, he's, he, he believed it was a kind of a police state. And uh, he describes in great detail why it's impossible for this police state to work. You know what was great about, uh, about this book? Um, help me understand something I don't think I, I really figured out before. Um, there are these minarchists who think that we should just get rid of the welfare state, maybe the warfare state, all these government regulations, reduce taxes, whatever, maybe eliminate taxes, except for some excise tax. But we have to re re retain this small layer of coercion. And we can call it the night watchman. Right? We'll put the night watchman up on the, the thing, you know, with a gun, just to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So the Darrow book um, points out that the, the problem is the night watchman. And if you're going to eliminate um, everything but the night watchman, you've really done essentially nothing. It'll always grow ag again. And and he says that the the most important thing to eliminate in the state is the presumption that it can give us justice. We have to get rid of this apparatus, and that is a priority. So it kind of turns everything upside down. Do you do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I was a. Uh, a sort of Randian minarchist. I sort of was into voluntary taxation because I really like oxymorons. But um, uh, I, so uh, the answer to me is that when you argue, like everybody accepts that there should be the government running police, law courts, maybe prisons, and some basic self defense, so basic national defense. Right. Uh, uh, everybody accepts that's sort of the starting point of of Western political thought. And then people say, well, how far should it be extended, and so on. You jump out of the entire Western tradition when you talk about no state. That's, like that's you, because if you say, I mean, if you said in the 16th or 17th century, uh, slaves should not be beaten. Well, I think most people would say, well, yeah, slaves should not be beaten. That would be ideal uh, unless, you know, they really are bad. But but yeah, in general, we'd prefer to have slavery where slaves were not beaten. And so you weren't outside the discourse of people's general presumptions or you could say prejudices. But if you start talking about the non-aggression principle, then what you're doing, it's sort of like being a physicist because like being a physicist in the late Middle Ages. So a physicist in the late Middle Ages could say, yes, we have a heliocentric model of the solar system, but God still set it in motion and God still created it and God still guides the planets through the heavens and so on. But then there's a point at which physics departs from religion. And, you know, in that famous statement, I can't remember which astronomer, where, where, where the Pope, he was showing the model of the solar system, and he said, well, where is God? And he said, well, uh, God is actually not necessary to the mathematics of the system. Uh, it, it runs on its own. It's not, not required. And there is a point of departure uh, from an existing belief system that is really uncomfortable for people, yeah. you know, which is where you get the, well, how would roads be built? And who would do the national defense and all that? As if, as if these questions even require answering. I mean, uh, it's it's like saying if you want to get rid of slavery, well, who's going to hire all the grandchildren of the slaves? It's like, well, I don't have those names because that's not the point. The point isn't who will hire them. The point is, is it morally right to own human beings? Right. It doesn't matter what happens afterwards. You do right though the sky falls. And so uh, there is this fear that people have of departing the main narrative. You can tweak it. But if you step off that, people feel there's an opposing oncoming train that's just going to wipe you out. Or you see that big round O in people's faces like, what? What? <laughs> you what? No, 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 no. We can slow this train down. We can't speed. We can speed it up. We can slow it down. But we simply cannot get off the train. And the train is what size should the state be? The question of whether there should be a state or not uh, is, is 
largely incomprehensible to people in a very alarming way. So people just, you know, there's a sense of incrementalism. Well, if we just take them, we slow the train down, slow the train down, and then people will be comfortable getting off. And I've not found that to be, to be the case. Yeah, Unfortunately, you've just got to jump. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. And I'm very interested to see where all this uh, stuff takes us in terms of uh, the application of, of um, moral morality and economic theory to um, to this idea of the of the small state or the or, or minarchy I really agree that it's a completely unviable uh, concept I'm more convinced of that than ever I was talking to Sheldon Richmond who's the editor of the Freeman about this he said well I think that's a very interesting point he said maybe we should be more tolerant of minarchists who for example want to preserve the socialists but we should demand of them if you if um, uh, if you're going to preserve one thing, make sure it's not the system of justice, because that's the worst aspect of the state. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I, I'm of the conclusion, Jeff, that there is no, hmm, there is no strategy in morality. Right? Morality is just the right and wrongness of things, uh -huh. uh, and and there's no strategy in morality. If you want to end slavery, there's no strategy. In, in ending slavery other than the continuous thundering or whispering or skywriting or tattooing or however you can communicate it in a way that sinks into people's head. Yeah. Slavery is immoral. Initiation of force is immoral. Violence is immoral. Uh, and there is no strategy behind that other than a grim grit-your-teeth repetition until it sinks into people's heads. Once it does, then the system will be solved and, and dismantled and, and will end of its own accord. But there's no strategy ahead of time other than pounding the table and screaming or whispering that uh, violence is immoral and will always produce escalating disasters. But I don't like the idea of let's figure out how we can temper the message as part of a strategy of freeing the world because morality is not strategic. Morality is axiomatic and fundamental and people are either going to get it or they're not, but they're not going to get it in gradations. Yeah, that was certainly Murray Rothbard's uh, position. You sounded exactly like that passage that he wrote in For New Liberty about the elimination of slavery, about uh, the importance of making the fundamental points again and again and again until it becomes very obvious to people that, uh, that we're living in a deeply immoral system and that's got to be uh, stopped, it's got to be ended. Yeah, and then it ends with, uh, with a bang and a whimper and a, a sort of snuffing out. Uh, but um, yeah, and that's why people say, well, violence, no, violence isn't going to work. Violence is the tool of the immoral. You can't impose violence with violence except in an extremity of self-defense that none of us are ever going right. to have to deal with in our lives. It's a completely right. theoretical thing. I mean, somebody wants my watch in a dark alley. It's like, here, you can have my underpants too if you want them. Just let me go with my kidneys. But um, uh, so, yeah, I think the idea of how should we strategize to be is, is just not important. You've just got to keep making the moral case. And if you can't make it to the old, make it to the young. If you can't make it to the young, make it to the middle aged. <laughs> you just yeah. keep going. And that's, to me, the only way that it's, uh, it's going to work. But if we can also understand the kind of beauty that emerges from uh, a free society, a setting of, of, of freedom, and, uh, and appreciate it uh, both morally and aesthetically, um, I think that will, will help us as well. And I, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that uh, the advocates of, of, of capitalism, the advocates of uh, human liberty, have been so good about describing the, the beautiful world that emerges in a state of, of human, human liberty. That's part of what I hope to do a little bit in some of my writings. This is why I write about the warehouse as if it's a, you know, a, a, a prayerful 
uh, environment and I, I make these re religious style metaphors. I, I don't shy away from that kind of stuff because... No, all freedom is a cathedral. It doesn't yeah. matter what form it takes. All, yeah. all freedom is a thing of beauty. It doesn't matter whether it's a smokestack or yeah. a painting. It is all a thing of beauty. A smokestack is simply evidence that something is being converted to something that is beautiful to someone or necessary to someone. No, it's and uh, it is all beautiful. I actually just did a uh, complete uh, come to Jesus, raise the rafters, rabble-rousing speech at the Porcupine Freedom Festival called We Are Still Here, which is an attempt to help people to understand how much thanks will flow down through the stairs of time to us from the future that we're building. In the same way that you and I are grateful for all the pioneers who pushed forward science and economics and human liberty, and we are incredibly grateful for the trials they went through, yeah. people in the future will be equally, if not more, grateful for us for the principles we're sticking to and the work that we're doing. And I think we, it's easy to forget that, uh, just what a beautiful world that brick by brick we're attempting yeah, to right. build. Is that speech on YouTube? Is it available? No, it's not yet. I'm still waiting for the video, but I'll send you the audio link. It's, well, uh, it yeah. was definitely a, uh, I, I wanted to do a barn burner of a speech for a while, and yeah. that certainly was the right environment, well, so great. I'll send it to you. Did you have fun at that? event? Oh, I loved it. It was just a blast. Uh, I, I actually got roasted for about two and a half hours with everybody making every joke at my expense, you could imagine, uh, which was just hilarious and a great deal of fun. So it was um, really great. Uh, it was a really, it's a, it's a highly recommended uh, uh, event. Uh, Pork Fest is fun. I'll be in New York on September the 10th as well at Liberty Fest uh, 2 and uh, at Libertopia uh, in San Diego, October 23rd, I think. Actually, I'm emceeing Libertopia this year, which should be a lot of fun. So, uh, so yeah, that's sort of where, where I'm coming up with are just fantastic, aren't they? Give a chance to, to, to socialize, get to know people, be inspired by other people's enthusiasm, learn from others. Um, I, I yeah, I you can't recommend the conferences enough. I mean, if you have to hitchhike and, and eat your own toenails to get there, I would strongly recommend to people get to any Liberty conferences you can. It is such a re-energizing thing to do. Next week we have at uh, the Mises Institute, the Mises University, so 250 kids coming from, from all around the world. I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, listen, I should probably let you get back to Vegas uh, because you appear to have sobered up at least somewhat. Your bow tie has stopped <laughs> spinning and uh, I haven't seen the shadow of a lady's leg cross your forehead in at least 20 minutes. So uh, listen, thanks. It was a great chat and uh, I will post a link to your book uh, on the video and in the notes for the podcast because uh, I highly recommend it. If you want to wait for my reading, I'm uh, currently reading it and uh, trying on a wide variety of idiotic voices. Oh, for just... the, uh, the, uh, I think it's a, it's a really enjoyable read and uh, I think it's uh, uh, going to be well uh it's going to be an enjoyable consumption in audiobook form though if you want the prose uh in the dry normal way i guess you could do it that way too but it's really recommended it's a great book called it's a jetson's world by jeffrey tucker thank you so much Stefan, for having me today and for all that you do my pleasure take care